0: Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to this event on why is civil service reform so hard. This is going to be a short uh, conversation with Sir John Kingman, but beginning with a short speech that he's going to give for about 20 minutes at the beginning. I'm Roman Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government. Thanks to those of you who've joined this and are watching now, there's a great number of you. Those uh, of you who've already sent in questions, many thanks. Uh, others of you who are just forming your questions, please do start sending them in either now or as Sir John is giving his speech. Uh, I know there's going to be a lot of very good ones on this. Great if you want to give your name and where you're watching this from. It always uh, helps us in um, selecting them and then in, uh, in answering them as well. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Civil Service. Please do tweet along with us. And we'll have a video and sound recording of the event and the text of the speech on our website within 24 hours. That's at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Well, now a brief introduction, but many of you who signed on will know exactly who our speaker is. So John Kingman's been the chair- chairman of UKRI, that's UK Research and Innovation, since 2016. And that's been overseeing the strategic direction of science and innovation funding in the UK, with a budget of over eight billion a year. He's also chairman of Legal and & General and Tesco Bank, and he has, and we're drawing on this in, this in this conversation, a long and distinguished Whitehall career. The second permanent secretary to the Majesty's Treasury, he had responsible responsibility for the Treasury's economics, ministry functions, policy relating to business, financial services and infrastructure. He was closely involved in the UK response to the financial crisis, including, indeed, uh, the banking crisis. John Kingman, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
1: Bronwyn, thank you. Just two months ago, the FT devoted pages of breathless analysis to the government's plan to smash the British state. And a month ago, The Economist splashed its cover on the same subject. How times change. Whether the revolution is still on at the time of writing is frankly anyone's guess. Dominic Cummings has departed, who knows, possibly taking his hard reign with him. And it's not clear whether this topic much interests the Prime Minister himself. Confusingly for the narrative, He's just gone and appointed a tough and savvy former Treasury Civil Servant as his new Chief of Staff. And yet, as and when the Covid reckoning comes, there will no doubt be plenty of blame to go round, some of it inevitably attaching to the Civil Service, and some of it will probably be fair. And we haven't got to Brexit yet. The traditional simile of the British Civil Service as a purring Rolls-Royce isn't much heard nowadays. Moreover, Michael Gove remains very much around. In July, in the middle of the pandemic, Mr Gove went to the trouble of giving a long lecture on civil service reform. He called for the civil service to change, less flitting from job to job, more build-up of real knowledge and experience, more expertise, particularly in mathematics, statistics, probability and data, more commercial experience, and just more experience and exposure to the world outside Westminster and Whitehall. This is indisputably a serious and fair critique. If anything, as many have pointed out, Gove actually echoes surprisingly directly the Fulton report commissioned more than 50 years ago by Harold Wilson. All of Gove's main points were central points of Fulton too. Yet two such parallel diagnoses, half a century apart in time, do rather suggest that changing the civil service is a lot easier to advocate than to achieve. Lucid diagnosis is all very well, but the trickier part is finding an administering effective cure. What cure the current government might have in mind, the Gove speech does not tell us. He sets out the problems, but nothing about what a reform programme might look like, nor how it could be achieved in practice. So far we've had quite a lot of colourful briefing and of course a few acts of violence but dispensing with the services of the cabinet secretary and a few permanent secretaries does not constitute a systemic reform, especially when it means replacing one clutch of Whitehall establishment lifers with another clutch of Whitehall establishment lifers. Nor is moving some civil servants out of London, a good reheated 1980s policy in itself going to get to the heart of any of the problems that Gove articulates. He's asked Lord Maud, Francis Maud, a veteran ma- Mandarin beta for ideas, and so we wait. But while we do, it seems timely to explore precisely why reform seems so perennially difficult to achieve and the challenges that Mr Gove and Lord Maud, if they're serious, will have to overcome. First of all, we're obviously talking about changing a very large and complex system with a strong embedded culture. That is clearly a long job. It's also, for most of the public, deeply boring, obscure, and irrelevant. It's not susceptible to headlines or sugar rush announcements, and it won't yield any political return on any meaningful timetable. So it's a very big ask to expect senior ministers to take any sustained interest. There is a fundamental mismatch in timescales. It was always a bit odd that Dominic Cummings said he thought his job would be done in a year. But there may also be a further political demand problem. Are the characteristics that Gove calls for even what ministers actually want? The answer is not immediately obvious. He calls, for instance, for civil servants who are more rigorous and fearless, but as he quite rightly acknowledges, rigour and fearlessness will only flourish if there is ministerial demand for it. Gove devotes a whole page of his speech, for instance, to the importance of good cost-benefit analysis. But this is actually a very odd observation, as an experienced minister Gove will know that Whitehall is already awash with cost-benefit analysis. Everything of any significance is subjected to a multi-stage business case process governed by the revered Green Book, which bends over backwards to try to value non-financial and societal benefits of every kind. The question is not whether Whitehall is capable of good, tough analysis, it already is. The question is whether ministers want to hear and act on the results. Here, quite frankly, there is room for doubt. I suspect in their private moments, my former Treasury colleagues might point wearily to some of the current government's moonshots, $500 million of public money invested in a bankrupt satellite firm, say, or the dreamed of bridge from Northern Ireland to a not very populated edge of Scotland across 20 miles of very deep bomb strewn water and question whether the government's hunger for rigorous cost benefit analysis is quite as intense as Mr Gove's speech hopes. To be fair, he does square up to this problem reforming how government works he plainly says in his speech requires ministers who can reform themselves but he does not tell us how this part of the reform program will be achieved still let's be clear it's much too easy to say that everything is the fault of the politicians that won't wash either the fact is that most of the items on the reformers shopping list more expertise less manic turnover More competence in execution and delivery, stronger commercial IT and project capability, more interchange with the outside world, better management of underperformance, are wholly in the Mandarin's gift to make happen, if they want to. The civil service machine has every freedom within pay constraints, to which I'll return, to choose who it recruits and promotes, what kind of jobs exist, what kind of people get them, and who is removed from them. So what's the problem? I'd like to answer this with a short story. About five years ago, I and Bill Crothers, who was then the government's chief commercial officer, were asked by the late Jeremy Haywood to lead a programme of commercial capability reviews of government departments, looking mainly at procurement. We did these studies in some depth. The picture was pretty consistent across government. Department's procurement functions were not under-resourced. In fact, the data showed they were well-staffed by private sector standards, but they were staffed, we thought, with, to put it bluntly, too many of the wrong people, too many junior process administrators, usually with generalist civil service backgrounds, too few serious experienced commercial people to handle difficult negotiations with suppliers. So we went to the permanent secretaries. You need to reshape, we said, bring in more senior, better paid people, pay for this by getting them to shrink and restructure the ranks working for them. I don't think any permanent secretary thought their procurement operations were brilliant. A few embraced our ideas quite warmly but a larger number clearly found our suggestions unwelcome, and these were quite difficult conversations. The main problem we hit, I think, was the one-dimensional nature of the civil service hierarchy. Highly paid jobs by civil service standards are, it's thought, necessarily senior in the pyramid. By definition, in a hierarchical pyramidal view of the world, there cannot be too many senior people. And very senior people must, it's assumed, necessarily manage large numbers of people. And the senior people generally are assumed to spend a lot of time with ministers. But why would ministers want to talk to people about procurement? And even if they did, would these commercial types have the necessary courtier skills? I thought all these assumptions could and should be questioned. There's absolutely no intrinsic reason why salary, place in a hierarchy, numbers of people managed, and proximity to ministers must all be rigidly aligned in an inflexible way. It's really not difficult. Not all jobs need to be the same, just change the shape and nature of the civil service pyramid. But there was also, I think, a deeper problem, generally unspoken. Not to put too fine a point on it, some permanent secretaries clearly saw procurement as a bit like plumbing, necessary but not intrinsically very challenging or important. We have surely all learned by now that good procurement is actually both very hard and very important. And of course, Very similar things can be said about many other topics, about IT, about HR, about property and so on, not to mention great swathes of operational delivery. The next steps model of the 1990s was a serious attempt to address some of these problems, to create delivery structures in which operational, not policy skills, would predominate even in senior roles. Ministers would set the direction, officials would have both more freedom and more accountability for delivering it. Yet this model is rather atrophied for no obviously good reason, and it's perhaps a missed opportunity that Mr Gove shows no sign of interest in re-energising it. Now, I want to emphasise that my procurement story was five years ago. I believe that some real progress has been made since then with the development of clearer structures of so-called functional leadership in procurement and other areas under the leadership of John Manzoni and others. But I'm also quite sure that we have a lot further to go there remains an excessively one-dimensional notion of the qualities needed in any successful senior civil servant. What are those qualities? Intellect, of course, ability to work well with any and all ministers, which necessarily requires pragmatism and deftness turning on a dime, ingenuity in finding solutions to tricky problems if only by elegantly drafting over the cracks, ability to engage skillfully with stakeholders without putting a foot in it. Increasingly over the years, the ability to manage people competently has rightly become much more important. There's nothing wrong with this list in itself. What's wrong is what's missing. I would argue that a track record of ever having made anything happen, as opposed to successfully keeping the plate spinning, is still, at most, seen as a nice-to-have. And perhaps most oddly of all, substantial or deep domain knowledge and experience is still not really particularly valued at any rate in the higher reaches of the policy-making civil service. I'm not sure where this disdain for knowledge and expertise comes from, but it is deep-rooted. An even older story. In 2003, I was asked by Gus O'Donnell to lead a review of the Treasury, and again I tried to break down the one-dimensional model a bit. I suggested there might be some topics, like corporate tax or pensions or the energy market, which were core Treasury business, but which were also ferociously complex and technical, and perhaps not ideally suited to being left entirely to even very brilliant 24-year-old generalists. Why not, I naively suggested, create some new roles outside the hierarchy? These not, need not manage anyone. They might or might not spend lots of time with ministers. They could and should be reasonably well paid. They might, I thought, be rather attractive to people inside or outside the civil service who are steeped in an area and interested in applying their knowledge at the heart of government. Gus accepted this recommendation, but it hit complete bemusement more generally and proved just too weird and countercultural. It died a quiet death. This indifference to knowledge and experience is, of course, then directly linked to what Gove rightly calls the civil service whirligig. Officials can and do hop from area to area without in any way damaging their career. There's very little incentive to develop expertise and experience in a particular area, or for that matter, to build and sustain real relationships with external stakeholders, which inevitably take time. And all this is linked to, to the almost comic lack of serious attention to training. Of course, The higher reaches of the civil service have always had strong generalist tendencies, but I have an unresearched hunch that the problem might actually, if anything, have got worse over the years. Take, for instance, a small but important sample, the current crop of permanent secretary heads of department. Tom Scholar at the Treasury, Philip Barton at the Foreign Office have deep knowledge and experience of their territory, as do Jim Harrah at HMRC, the spies, and Susan Ackland-Hood, a refreshing appointment last week at education but I think it's true to say that literally none of the other current permanent secretary heads of department, when they were appointed, had more than a year or two's previous experience of working in their department. This fact is quite spectacular. My guess is that if one did a similar survey 30 or 50 years ago, the picture would not have been so stark. Look then at the same group through a different lens. What external experience do they have? Of the current crop, I think only Stephen Lovegrove in banking or Sarah Munby at McKinsey have serious experience of life outside government. Alex Chisholm had some business experience early in his career, as did Antonio Romeo, who was briefly a management consultant. A couple of others have done short secondments. Otherwise, that's it. This is a true lack of diversity, and again, really quite extreme. Now, all these people are phenomenally talented. We are lucky to have them in the public service. But still, the reformers, just like the reformers of 50 years ago, are asking these critical individuals to upend and rethink fundamental aspects of the system in which they flourished and which got them to the top. There's absolutely no reason why they couldn't do this, but how likely really is it? I put this question to a former permanent secretary who ruefully responded that I was missing a further inherent problem. There is, he said, a civil service temperament a willingness to tolerate and relish the complexity and variety of being part of a big system, but being sufficiently dispassionate and resigned to accept and adapt to the changing whims of successive ministers. His point, I think, is that this isn't just a personality type, which is ever likely to include very many hard-driving reformers or drivers of systemic change. And if so, this is a pity, because it would clearly be much better for the civil service itself to embrace and drive its own reform, than to have ministers try to find ways to impose it from the centre. That way, to use a phrase I've stolen from the great priest Peter Hennessy, the civil service might end up with a refreshing shower, not hard rain. The last issue I want to touch on is fundamental if we want a high performing civil service, but absolutely no one wants to talk about it. And that is civil service pay. Here are some facts. The starting salary of a fast stream graduate civil service servant service recruit is 28,000 pounds a year. In management consultancy, which is recruiting for very similar skills, the figure is at least 45 to 50,000 more in higher-end firms. In investment banking, again looking for similar skills, the going rate for a first-year graduate, including bonus, is more like 80 to 85,000. These differentials then become yawningly wide over time, especially at the point people start thinking about houses and families. At age 30, a successful fast-track civil servant might have just made it into the senior civil service and be earning something like 75,000. But in consulting, they would be earning between twice and four times that. I asked Investment Bank what they would pay a reasonably successful 30-year-old. They told me 450,000 all in. That's six times our civil servant. Moreover, we expect all these people to be living in the same excruciatingly expensive city. This problem has become extreme. In 1970, the average London house price was 1.2 times the median grade six, seven pay. That ratio is now 8.4 times. In the 1980s, the then review body on top salaries used to get terribly exercised, that captains of industry could earn a few times what a permanent secretary might earn. Now, the average FTSE CEO earns more than 4 million pounds a year, more like 25 times the permanent secretary rate. This all reflects a huge societal shift and of course, it will be unrealistic and wrong to expect there to be no gap between the public and private sectors. It will never be practical or, for that matter, necessary to try to match the investment banks pound for pound. Working for the government is a privilege. It can be hugely interesting and rewarding. It's reasonable that there should be and clearly can be some significant differential. The point is that there's only so far you can stretch the elastic. And this is particularly true, perhaps, in critical operational roles in procurement, in IT and so on. Policy roles close to ministers will always have a powerful attraction for a certain kind of talented person. It's less immediately obvious that fixing IT and HMRC, say, has quite the same compensations for a massive pay discount. Yet the operational and commercial challenges and accountability can, if anything, be greater and certainly more important for the country than in most private sector roles. Even policy officials have real choices. Look, for instance, at the pull, even within the public sector, of organisations which can and do pay a lot more. Some of the very best civil servants have trodden this path, including Sam Woods at the PRA on 280,000, Nicol Rati at the FCA on 435,000, and Sharon White and Melanie Dawes at Ofcom on 315,000, all way above permanent secretary rates. Meanwhile, Dominic Cummings bemoans, like Fulton before him, the prevalence of arts and humanities graduates and the relative shortage of hard scientists in the civil service entry. He's right about that but fiddle as much as you like with the civil service entry requirements, you will not solve the fundamental problem. High quality STEM graduates are simply a lot more employable in higher paying jobs in the rest of the economy. Is it any surprise that the civil service is left with the less high earning humanities graduates whose skills conveniently happen to be quite well suited to a career which is mainly about skillful use of words? I expect the government to have no truck with any of these arguments. The case for higher pay for bureaucrats in the midst of a savage recession is, to put it mildly, politically awkward, fair enough. But if so, we should be clear that we will have the civil service we're willing to pay for. There will only be so much that can be done magically to attract and retain the most brilliant data scientists or commercial negotiators or IT whizzes into public service. Yes, there will always be some that are always happy who've made their money or happen to have no interest in it or have private means and want to do public service, or just find government incredibly interesting. There just aren't enough of them to run the British state, especially in the less glamorous mid-level engine room jobs which really matter. One last quick point. Talk to anyone who's led a major private sector change programme. They will tell you that however tough you need to be, it's also vital to offer a credible vision to those people you want to retain, which will motivate them to come with you on the journey. Otherwise, the big risk is that the wrong people leave. In the midst of COVID and Brexit, some civil servants may already feel, as Dennis Healy put it, that you don't conduct an appendix operation on a man while he's moving a grand piano up the stairs. So far, the government has stuck some heads on pikes and briefed some tough talk. But civil servants are generally pretty acute. They will not be keen to be made scapegoats. So if the government does want to undertake a major reform programme, I would say there is some work to do to articulate the positive side of the vision one that the best talent and the best potential talent will choose to buy into, since these are, by definition, the people who have most choices about where they want to work. Thanks very much.
0: John, thank you very much indeed for giving giving that uh, sweeping and very direct account of uh, what might constitute change. Let's start with the question of what has worked, because as as you describe it, the sense of frustration and recommendations and exhortations for reform go back quite some way. So if we look at what has worked for a start, before we come on to other aspects of your critique, um, where would you shine a a light? I
1: I think that's a very good question. And I think there absolutely are um, some very positive stories, though some of them have slightly run into the sands. I mentioned uh, just a moment ago the Next Steps programme which I think was a very probably the most serious um, attempt at, at um, uh, civil service reform in recent generations, um, and I think had a lot going for it. Um, I would mention actually the creation of the OGC. I think people have rather forgotten about this. This was a serious attempt to professionalise procurement under Peter Gershon. Um, again, sort of abandoned, not totally clear why. Um, I was very involved in various ways with the creation of the shareholder executive, which brought some incredibly talented people, including Stephen Lovegrove, um, into government to manage the government's uh, assets and shareholdings. And I created myself a a, a sort of variant of that to manage the bank shareholdings in the crisis in what was then called um, UKFI. And I would also point to actually, on the sort of policy making side, actually, um, what Gus and others have did to bring economics into the heart of the Treasury. I mean, people forget that you know there was a there was a time when economists were slightly looked down on in parts of the Treasury, uh, and I think Gus and others really changed all that, and that's been a lasting reform which has made a a, a positive difference
0: thanks for that and, and you referred as well to the functions um something the institute yeah. written quite a lot about um led by john manzoni and obviously that's made quite a bit of difference in some areas but still we don't have the really a model um for for example michael Gove, um you know, leading a lot of this this attempt at reform to to follow and i want to tease out some of the ways in which we might uh, look at um how reform might actually go about let me ask you though about this government because this government came in uh, with an ambitious agenda already. Brexit, getting it done, uh, levelling up and that was before coronavirus hit and yet almost from the first weeks after the general election the question of civil service reform was a big deal. It was way up there. Why do you think that was? Well um, I can only speculate but
1: um, I mean first of all I think it's pretty clear that um, this was a very driving interest for Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove, who had, you know, they had operated um, over a long period of education. And I suspect um, a good part of this is born out of their sense of frustration about their experiences um, in that time. But I also, I I mean, I hope I made clear that I actually think a lot of their critique um, has force. I I think there are lots of things the civil service could and should be better at, quite a lot of things. Um, what I think I'm trying to say is that, first of all, um, it's one thing to articulate the critique, but I think the much more interesting question is, well, how are you going to fix it? Uh, and secondly, I don't think it works just to have taboo topics. And the the, ex- the most extreme example of a taboo topic is is the pay whole pay issue, which, as I say, no one wants to talk about. It's slightly crept up on us over the years. It's obviously not restricted to the civil service. It's a it's, it's big issue in many other parts of the public sector. Um as well. But I think we are probably, you know, particularly once once COVID is sort of we, we're coming out of COVID, there is inevitably going to be a debate, just as there was after, for example, the Falklands War about the competence and capability of the civil service. And I think it's right that there should be such a debate. Um, uh, but it has to, it, it can't just rule topics out. So, for example, you mentioned the functional leadership agenda. I think there's a lot of force in that. But you won't actually Um, achieve anything like what is aspired to if you're not willing to take on the pay thing and make the case for it. And I think there are things that could be done to make the case. In in particular, I think, um, you know, the the public is never going to be wildly enthusiastic about paying uh, civil servants more. But I think, for example, saying to people, look, well, actually, we can have a a smaller bureaucracy um, with... With better people, um, and that is that—that's absolutely the approach that I was advocating in the specific area of procurement that I talked about. Um, but I think it has much more general application.
0: Well, let's let's drill into that a bit because you you put a lot of emphasis, and I think absolutely rightly, on this pay question, and you've also called it a bit taboo, which I think is also absolutely right. But um, how do you really get change in this? Do you feel it's tied to the question of politicians' pay as well? Yes, I, look, I
1: think that's completely clear. and um you it is I think there is um, I think I think um, the political world um, uh, finds the whole pay issue very difficult. and it all starts with um the pay of politicians themselves. Um, I mean I was talking to a to a permanent secretary who 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 feels that you know a lot of this sort of was made a lot worse by the MPs expenses scandal. and you know, as he, as he sort of slightly memorably put it, um, you know, if you if you if you kick the dog, the dog then uh, instinctively bites the cat. Um, and um, you know, I, I personally believe. Um, uh, any, anyway, I, I take. It. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and and I'm not pretending that's an easy that's an easy um, uh, battle to 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 win. Um, but you know, there are other countries. That pay their public servants very differently. I mean, people always point to Singapore. Well, actually, Singapore is a rather well-run country. Now, I'm not saying it's an immediately replicable model. It obviously isn't. Um, but you know, I, as I say, I think I think um, it is going to be obvious um, next year that um, there are real issues about the competence of the machine. Um, and you know, what is needed is a, is is a package in the round that that addresses that. And I think you know, some some long-term reform to pay, it's not going to be something you do overnight, uh, has to be part of that, or it's, it just won't work.
0: But by long-term, I mean, do you, do you think it is um, realistic? Really, we've got, a, I mean, a, a opinion polls show, and i know there were another set this week, showing that the public doesn't think MPs should be paid as much as they are already. Um, and um, we're coming into a year when, almost certainly the question of public sector pensions uh, and, and that big part of the package gets looked at.
1: Well, look, I'm, as I say, I'm not pretending it's going to be pretending it's going to be easy. And I think um, uh, that all these things have to be on the table. Um, so, as I said, I think I think I wouldn't go into an argument about civil service pay without also um, uh, being clear that I was going to do something about the size of the civil service. Um, but personally, I do believe that um, uh, m- many parts of the civil service. Would actually be more efficient and more effective if they were smaller, um, and therefore I think I think that's on the table. Uh, the pension thing is also interesting, um, and um, you know I think I think that could be part of um, some sort of credible reform package. Um, but look, uh, I didn't say it was going to be easy. Yeah. My whole topic was it. Why was it so hard?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's go to the relocation point. As you said, not a new suggestion, uh, but the government says it's going to um, do something about this, though the the question, I guess there's a question of whether the hard rain really um, is going to fall in that direction at all. Um, What do you think is actually useful in the way of relocation compared to, for example, trying to hire civil servants locally, not just moving them out of London, or indeed devolving powers to different parts of the country? I mean, I, I'm wondering whether you think there's a nest of issues there really tangled up together and people just wave a wand and say relocation, that's going to solve them. Yeah, um,
1: so lots of questions um, in there. I mean, um, f- first of all, I, I mean, it doesn't seem to be hugely in vogue uh, right now, but I do, I do personally believe that um, uh, devolution of power and decision-making is a real uh, issue for this country. I was involved with George Osborne in creating some of the elected mayors and and trying to uh, make sure they had um, uh, serious powers. It was it was quite an interesting set of discussions because suddenly you had the Treasury because Osborne was driving it, um, challenging departments to release power, um, which you know was interesting um, set of discussions. Um, but actually, I think you know. Could have been the beginning of something serious, uh, and I and I and I hope that doesn't get completely lost. But on this question of moving civil servants, I mean, first of all, it's been done before in in a world which was much less technologically advanced than than we are. So, um, for example, the organisation you mentioned that I chair, UKRI, has um, thousands of staff um, based in Swindon who were moved out of London uh, in I think the mid 80s, um, and that works perfectly well. Um, and there are, I'm absolutely sure, you know, we've all learned in this, in this um, crisis that, um, you know, you can do much more remotely. Um, I suspect, um, like many, like where the commercial world is going is a much more mix and match sort of world where um, people come into the office, um, uh, you know, a day or two a week, um, uh, but are much more based elsewhere. And I'm sure the civil service can do something like that. I think with the heart of the sort of the high policy-making civil service, which actually is what the Gove speech was mainly about, it will be harder. I'm not saying impossible, um, but it will be harder because um, th- ministers, in my experience, want to want to talk to people at the drop of a hat, and they might get the hang of always doing so by by Zoom, um, uh, but they might not. Um, and of course, you know. Aspirant, ambitious civil servants will always want to be physically close to ministers because they'll want to be part of the part of, part of the conversation. And of course, you know, it's been interesting at the COVID crisis. We actually saw the key decision makers in the country, you know, piling into number ten, and many of them caught COVID as a result. Um, uh, so, so I think um, uh, there's always going to be a challenge with with parts of the policy making civil service. But actually, there, those are actually quite if you if you sort of that's quite a small part of what we call the civil service, which is hundreds of thousands of people.
0: What about the lack of domain knowledge? And you, you, you talked a bit about this, you know, the specialist knowledge, deep knowledge in particular subjects, what could be done about that? Is it inextricably linked with the, the pay question or are there other things that yeah. could be done?
1: Um, I, I mean, I think these things do all sort of hang together in the sense that um, they become easier to fix together than separately. But um, uh, the the... The attitude, sort of experience and knowledge, is really a cultural thing, and um, uh, I absolutely think um, uh, you know the permanent secretaries collectively could change the way the system works because it would be a question of changing um, what is valued. Now, what you do have to do, you know, it is unquestionably a skill to help ministers devise solutions to problems. Uh, and that is—it's that's that's a serious skill, and it's one that ministers hugely value. And if you—if all you have is a bunch of um, you know hugely expert people who can't um, find a way to work with ministers, that's not going to work either. So you—you um, you have to do both. Um, You—but I don't see why um, uh, it's not possible. Um, for individuals to master both of those things. Um, and it's just a question of the I mean, the appointment decisions that are made, the promotion decisions that are made, all of those things. Uh, and I just think the civil service has got locked into a particular way of um, uh, approaching these things, which is rather extreme. Mm.
0: All right, well, let's go to some questions well, there's some very good ones coming in. Um, thanks for that. It's not that I'm, I'm short of questions myself, but I, I might come back to some of those. Let's um, uh, let's start with one from Diane in Northumberland, who says, how do you think we get more diversity of thought within the civil service and government advisors?
1: Really, really good question. I mean, f- fundamentally, um, I think that, um, uh, I think ministers can do a lot um, to, to demand diversity of thought um, and actually, I'm not going to claim that the Treasury was a model of diversity in lots of ways, it certainly isn't, um, but actually one good thing about the Treasury compared to some other departments is that it's always been a place that exposes argument between officials to um, the Chancellor and, and other Ministers, and and um, uh, I think um, you know the Chancellors I've worked with have really valued that, and because they really valued it, um, uh, it tended to happen, and including, you know, things that would be unthinkable in some other departments, like junior officials arguing with their bosses um, in front of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and that's a good thing. So, I think ministerial demand is very important, but I also think that, um, uh, you know, the the Permanent Secretary card who in charge of departments, um, uh, you know, can can make choices about what sort of people they bring in. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I, I do think that, um, uh, more could be done.
0: Let's just stay on this point of ministers for a second. There's quite a few questions on this, and thank you to people uh, to people for sending them. What do you think ought to be done to, um, if you like, improve ministers?
1: Um, I, I think I'm, I don't think I, I'm in a position to answer that really. Um, I mean, I think that um,
0: uh, the, the,
1: the the IFG has, has has attempted all sorts of. Um, uh, training programs and things. And actually, um, I actually participated in in one with a group of um, very experienced um, middle-ranking ministers uh, at the end of the Labour government. Um, And it was astonishingly liberating, actually, because somehow the IFG managed to create a safe space in which they could ask kind of questions that they never felt confident asking because it would make them look stupid to ask them. Um, so I remember having to explain to a very experienced minister how the government funds itself and what a guilt was, um, which they just never felt comfortable asking anyone. Um, so I think those sorts of things are you know well well, well, well worth a go. Um, you know, I do think that um you know, I don't want to bring everything back to pay. um but the 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 quality of people in politics, um, you know, must at some level be linked to the fact that politics is, you know, is a very high risk profession. Uh, if you look at the talented people who get sort of slightly randomly spat out in mid-career, um, uh, it's it's not the most rewarding life. Um, uh, now you know there'll always be people who are attracted by the fame and, 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 and the, the possibility of power but um, you know it's a real topic.
0: It is. I, look, I, I do just want to stay on this uh, for a second because despite what you think, I think you're in a very good position to, to say things on, on this. And as you said, it's a high-risk um, profession. Uh, they go into it, they don't know how long they've got, they don't know how long their party's got, they're trying to get things done. Um, they may not have expertise in that particular area. Uh, they've got a whole blowtorch of public opinion and social media and so on. Um, and, and many of them going into it for not, not just fame and glory, but wanting to get stuff done to improve the mm. uh, the country how can they get better quickly at making those decisions? And how could the civil service help them?
1: Well, actually, I mean, it's a, it is a good challenge. You know, does the civil service help them? Um, uh, and I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't thought deeply about this, but um, uh, you know, actually you know, when you arrive as a minister um, in a department, you know, you're, you're given a often very good private office, but you're just suddenly confronted with boxes full of paper um and um you know the the only real help a minister gets is usually from their private secretary um and um, and and that's that can often be really great but um it probably isn't enough and you know i'm not aware of of the civil service sort of thinking very hard about how it could help ministers now ministers you know they they need to feel A level of of trust in the civil service um, uh, for that to be possible, which I I hope and believe they they should.
0: There have been signs that they don't all feel that, um, including from this government. So let me bring in a question from Graham Mather, who says Would ministerial expanded private offices or cabinets, cabinet in the the, the continental um, system, help move towards more expert support and the way uh, he suggests from the Cummings spad culture?
1: Um, well, I'm not, not going to sure. comment on the Cummings spad sure culture, but um, but uh, they they could. I mean, it slightly depends, um, you know, what sort of people um, would be brought in. I mean, if, if all you get is sort of ever more, um, how can I put it, sort of politically aspirant 24-year-olds, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's in itself going to help very much. But actually, I have seen ministers bring really serious people in. Um, uh, I mean, actually, Gordon Brown had around him, um, uh, and of course, prime ministers have often had around them, um, you know, really serious people. Um, I mean, uh, Gordon Brown brought in, you know, people like Shriti Vadira as well-known, but less well-known people um, uh, who... Worked on um, you know, Paul Gregg, for example, did a huge amount of work early on in the Brown government on tax credits and work incentives. Um, and and people like that, and they seem to have sort of slightly fallen out of fashion. the idea of bringing in you know people who really know a policy area as special advisors uh, as as sort of grit in the oyster to challenge the machine. actually, i I think that can work really, really well. Um, and, you know, is good for the civil service. Um, You know, I think that's a separate question to, you know, do you want a politically appointed civil service, which is a very different step. Um, uh, And interestingly, I mean, it's interesting that nobody, I mean, you know, the the government has talked um, about, you know, the need for very fundamental change in the civil service, but it doesn't seem, at least overtly, it doesn't seem to be... um, uh, seeking to move in the direction of a politically appointed civil service and personally, I'm, I, I think it's right not to.
0: Thanks no, Thanks for touching on that, at that extra point, which we hadn't in fact discussed. Let me bring it a different angle, interesting one from Ian Courtney, who says, as someone who lives in a devolved nation, Wales in his case, is the model of a unified UK civil service really sustainable?
1: Very interesting question. Um, uh, I mean, it will only be sustainable if um, the governments of the devolved countries um, want to stick with it. Um, uh, I hope they might. I hope the civil service you know, is good enough that they naturally want to. Um, I don't see, I mean, I can imagine it going either way. Um, uh, but um, uh, I certainly, I mean, there, there, there was a tradition uh, that um, you know you you wouldn't get to be to the very top of the Welsh or the Scottish um, civil service uh, or indeed non Irish um, unless you'd spent serious time um, in UK or English departments, um, often the Treasury. Um, personally, I think that was a good thing. Um, uh, I sense that that tradition may have frayed a little bit.
0: Mm, That's interesting. Um, Let me bring in one from Andrew who says, I'm a junior civil servant and I've been shocked at how woeful the hiring practices are. Many jobs only require three to four competency examples which can be copied and pasted for each job application and where many candidates simply make things up or massively exaggerate. Having verbal and numerical reasoning tests as standard would surely be one minor improvement. It's a heartfelt cry.
1: I mean, look, I, I'm I'm quite a long way from the coalface. I've been out of the civil service for nearly five years. Um, and even when I was in the civil service, I was quite a long way from um, uh, the sort of hiring processes um, that, that are being described here. So I, I can't comment on whether that's fair or not. Um, uh, I think um, the the more general point I would make is, I, looking back on it, I'm sort of surprised how little, comparatively little attention was given at the sort of top of the machine to um, the process of recruitment into the machine. Um, uh, And I think that's a mistake. I mean, it's interesting, you know, it wouldn't be imaginable in um, large parts of the private sector. For example, I mean, I worked for a few years in an investment bank and all the senior bankers spent quite a lot of time um, uh, meeting potential recruits and indeed going out and and sort of attempting to attract potential recruits and going and talking to universities and and so on, Um, uh, which certainly in my time, you know, uh, I didn't see anything like that sort of attention devoted. Um, And and certainly the Treasury tended to sort of assume that it had a kind of God-given right to to attract this incredibly talented um, pipeline of people. Now, to be fair, the Treasury did continue to attract some very, very good people, though it also tended to lose them quite early in their careers um, for reasons that I've talked about. Um, you know, and the other thing that I just think is sort of um, scandalously underdeveloped really is bringing people in, in in mid-career, and there's got to be a lot more potential to do that. Right,
0: let me bring in one from fact too. From Charlie Barnes, it's uh, from the DWP, saying I don't see pay being the main issue. Sorry, but I disagree. Uh, and goes on to say, um, actually, public service is what keeps us all here. And then Charlie throws in at the end the question: um, is, is lack of rigor in ensuring qualified expertise is, is promoted part of the part of the problem?
1: Um, the answer to his second question is is yes. Um, on the first question, look, I um, you know, different people have different views. Um, I'm all for public service. I hope I believed in it. I spent, you know, well over 20 years um, uh, in, 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 in um, public service. Um, and I worked with people who were incredibly motivated, and all of whom could have earned a lot more doing other things. Um, uh, but I, I want to take you back to the phrase I used in my speech, which is, you know, I think there's only so far you can stretch the elastic. And in particular, in my experience, you know the, the 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 rubber really hits the road when people um, start to have families um, and they start to think about um, where those families are going to live and you know houses and all the rest of it. And I think the problem is very closely linked to the house price problem. The the whole question of um, things moving outside London could help here. I think could help for for large parts of the system Um, and that's a very good reason to think hard about it Um, but you know it's it's not a question of you know by definition anyone who's currently in the civil service is 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 going to be highly motivated by public service but you you can't stretch that forever
0: no that's very good we've got several questions about um whether coronavirus is actually going to encourage change or make it make it easier. And, and I think you, you've there just touched on one that does indeed make it easier. Are there, are there any others though? Um, we have several questions of, of people saying coronavirus and getting civil service to work um, very closely together in all kinds of departments. Yeah. Uh, is very, very fast in different ways. Has that shaken up things?
1: I'm sure it will. Just like, um, I mean, remember I'm not working in the civil service at the moment, so I'm not as close to this as some people who, many people on this call, but um, uh, I mean, certainly, I lived through the financial crisis in the Treasury, which was a kind of massive wake-up call to the Treasury in lots of ways, but also changed the way the Treasury worked in lots of good ways. Um, uh, certainly, in the organisations I am involved in now, um, you know, it's absolutely transformed. Actually, it's transformed. I think the way senior teams work together. It's really brought them together in lots of ways, as, as crises often can do. It's certainly totally. Change our assumptions about how you use technology and the ways in which we we engage with others uh, remotely. And you just have to imagine. I mean, imagine going through anything like this in a world of conference calls, let alone one where you couldn't have a conference call. Um, uh, I mean, it would have been utterly awful. Um, uh, and I think I think there will be lasting consequences. I think um, you know um, uh, flexibility, i.e. It's not a question. Are you, are you 100% in the office, or are you 100% somewhere else? But actually, mixing and matching, as I said earlier. Um, uh, but you know, I think that I think there'll be a whole range of other topics. Um, uh, you know, clearly there are going to be lessons to to learn about procurement, for example. Um, uh, I think there will be lessons about um, uh, the use of science in policy and the best way to do that, um, uh, for sure. So yeah, I think there'll be you know there there'll be plenty to chew on.
0: Mm. And thanks to Nick Skates uh, from Bayes in particular for that uh, very sharp uh, form of that question. Um, let, let's see, we've got a lot a lot of people very exercised on pay, um, and um, and uh, some quite um, annoyed at your comments, um, and so they're doing it for public uh, service. I, I, I might come back to some of those, but let me take one from uh, Joan. Um, Really on a, on a different angle. How equipped is the civil service to deliver on the net zero on the net zero agenda? And what changes might be needed for that?
1: Gosh, I'm not sure I'm remotely competent uh, to say. I mean, my banal observations on that would be: um, you're only going to get anywhere on net zero by working very much across departments um, and. Um, uh, I, I'm just not in a position to know um, how well that's, how well that's working, um, whether we have the right expertise on the problem, what um, sort problem is the wrong word, Men, there are of course many, many problems. Um, uh, I, I really don't think I'm, you know, being being four or five years out of date, I, I really don't want to comment on that.
0: No, that's absolutely fine, but perhaps you could expand then on where you thought the civil service could get smaller, because some people say, look, uh, this is an area, there's a big new challenge. Uh, it's going to need an awful lot of things done very quickly right across government. This is the kind of thing uh, increasing the pressure for the civil service to get bigger. Uh, and numbers have been, as, as we saw, a big drop after 2010, but then numbers have been rising really quite uh, sharply uh, with Brexit and now indeed with coronavirus. So big emergencies sometimes seem to lead to great rises in uh, numbers of civil servants. So where would you think? They could get I
1: them, they think get I, 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 my views on this may well be controversial. I don't know, but um, uh, I think the civil service um, has a has a great tendency to go for the big numbers model. Um, uh, it's it's always the sort of very big hierarchy and um, large teams and. You know that is not, in my experience, always the most effective way of tackling a problem because the the problem with very large numbers of people is that they create work for each other for good reason. I mean, they you know if you're going to have large numbers of people, they have to interact with each other and they have endless meetings and they send emails and 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 papers to each other and and then you have to have processes for all those things being vetted by other people and and all the rest of it. And before you know it, you've 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 really created. Um, very inefficient system. Um, And, you know, I I was involved in Treasury in in, um, various, sort of, a long time ago, but, um, uh, you know, sort of various exercises to shrink civil service numbers. And in my experience, it could often make bits of the civil service more effective, and and some of the most effective. So I mean, it's interesting, you asked me which reforms had worked, and I talked about a few, Um, you know, some of these things were tiny, um, the shareholder executive, um, which was in the then DTI, um, uh, you know, was very small and did a lot. Um, UKFI, which I created to, to to manage the shareholdings in the banks, you know, it was you could have you could have had hundreds of people um, uh, who would have you know crawled all over the banks, but it wouldn't have made the world a better place. Um, and UKFI had sort of six or seven people in it um, when I ran it. Um, and I'm in absolute. I mean, if I'd asked for a hundred people, I would have got it. Um, but I didn't want a hundred people. Mm. And, and if I look at, if I look at certainly, if I can, if I compare and contrast legal in general, which is a very large, complex um, organisation um, uh, in terms of its responsibilities, we pay the pensions of millions of people for a start, with um, uh, the largest fund manager in Britain. Um, you know we're very small. I mean, there are seven thousand people in the company um, uh, across the globe, um, and if I look at any particular area and I compare it to the way the civil service organizes itself, um, you know, it's 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 minuscule. Um, so I I I do think the civil service has a tendency to sprawl.
0: Yeah. Sorry, that's probably controversial. No, very interesting. And thanks for the question about um, whether you would say a bit more about the size and shape of the civil service, which partly answers uh, that question, and that question had several parts in it. All right, let's come back a bit to the um, the devolution um, and and relocation questions. I've got a pair of questions here. One from Richard Davies saying it's very noticeable how few civil service staff are from the regions and devolved nations compared to the past. Has devolution led to a permanent change there? Um, in a way that you would want it to. I mean, setting up devolved government would um, locate some of it there. And one from Peter Wilson-Smith saying, how much does it achieve moving civil servants out of London if decisions are still taken in London?
1: Well, I I, I think, as you said earlier, Bronwyn, there are are various thoughts um, intertwined in in those questions. I mean, personally, I think we do. This is an over-centralised country and I think, uh, um, it would be a better-run country if um, uh, we had more devolution, uh, both to the countries of the UK and to, to the great cities of the UK. Um, and you know, we've 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 made only very modest steps there. Um, and I think those, um, you know, handing those powers then creates some very interesting jobs that talented people will want to go and do. I don't myself believe in in relation to the devolved countries that necessarily means that that you know for for career reasons it isn't healthy for for right. for people working on English matters to go off and work on devolved matters and vice versa um, and actually you know a lot of the most talented quite a few of the most talented people I worked with in the Treasury chose to go off and work in various forms of local and devolved government um, uh, there was there was a there was a period when that was a very um, positive and attractive thing for people to do. And actually, people did get a lot out of it. I mean, I remember, for example, um, many people may remember the late Chris Martin, um, you know, a brilliant, brilliant kind of very, very fast-track policy civil servant who got to be Principal Private Secretary of the Prime Minister, you know, went off to a tough London council. And he would never have not done that if, you know, he. he I know he put a lot of value on it. Mm. No, thank you
0: very much for that. We ask one from Martin Weecroft, saying, "Do you think the civil service knows what good looks like? For example, quality of financial information available to support decisions seems an area that needs substantial improvement." I, 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 question.
1: I think it's a brilliant question. Actually, um, uh, I think it's true that the civil service doesn't necessarily know what good looks like. I mean, I think I think the civil service does know what good looks like in terms of you know helping helping ministers through a through a tricky. ECOFIN discussion or something. um, I think it knows exactly how to do that. Um, But I don't think, uh, at any rate, the top of the civil service um, really knows what good looks like in terms of making things happen, in terms of use of technology, um, in terms of a really strong finance function, um, and one could no doubt list lots lots of other things as well. And this links back, of course, to both the experience point that, you know, unless you go out and, and see how things are done elsewhere, you know, how would you know? It links to the training point, the fact there isn't any serious training, um, because that's another window on the world. Um, it links to the pay point in terms of bringing in people from outside um, who do know what good looks like um, or can do. Um, so, uh, I think all these things slightly, slightly, slightly hang together, but I'm, I'm, I enthusiastically agree with the spirit of the question.
0: Okay, great. I'm trying to find one. Um, someone. Um, all right. So it's Ian, Ian uh, from Innovate UK, saying one reason the civil service doesn't hire mid-career individuals from outside is the strange way pay ranges are used. For example, a DD role can be advertised from 70,000 pounds to 117,000 pounds, but ever Anyone from outside the civil service can only start at the bottom of that range, which restricts the obvious talent and diversity of thought. Surely this this is an example of something that, that can be changed with relative ease, even if it doesn't change the wider pay issue. As I said, there's a lot of questions exercised both about what you could borrow, borrow from the, the private sector yep. and why you should not touch the private sector, uh, and and a lot of indignation. But here's one precise one. Um, So, look,
1: I'm surprised that that's the case. It wasn't the case, I mean, I certainly, when I was in the civil service, brought in people, lots of people from outside, um, uh, at various different points in pay ranges, um, or indeed, even sometimes above them, if you could squeak it through. Um, uh, um, So, I'm very surprised to hear that that's the case, and I I wonder whether it is necessarily the case. It surprises me.
0: Okay. Um, and I'll explore that afterwards. And let me finish, and I think this does have to be the final one. It takes us slightly beyond the Civil Service. One from David Falcon saying, do we not need more open appraisal of policy proposals before they're enacted? Whatever happened to Green Papers?
1: Really good point. Um, uh, I mean, look, there, they're always going to be, we're, we're, we're sort of in wartime at the moment um, on both, um, you know, Brexit and um, Covid, and, you know, there will always be certain situations where you just have to respond very uh, quickly. We didn't do a lot of consultation in the financial crisis because we couldn't. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a wholehearted believer in um, engaging with the outside world. Now, the spirit in which you do that is important. Um, uh, you know, I, I have seen consultation exercises, which which are sort of attempts to find something that will satisfy everyone, and something that will satisfy everyone is actually unlikely to be great policy, uh, or at least you have a you have a huge risk of a sort of lowest common denominator effect. Um, but I've I've never seen a you know the the crucial thing about consultation is you find out what are all the problems you're going to hit, um, and um, uh, then work out what you're going to do about them. Um, it was always a big problem with budgets, um, but even, you know, actually in my time the Treasury steadily became more open. Even I, mean, I remember uh, years ago we invented R&D tax credits, and and um, it was thought it might be a good idea to consult on this, and. Um, Various people said we couldn't possibly consult on a tax measure, tax measures there was all sorts of theological stuff around you couldn't do this. Actually it turned out you could do it. Um, yeah. there there's certain tax changes you have to announce overnight because otherwise people will preempt them, but actually they're in a minority. Um so yes, really good point. They do see there does seem to be less consultation than there was.
0: Thank you very much for that and that point about uh, tax and treasury consultation is one that the IFG has advocated. We're going to have to come to a a close there. Thank you for the terrific questions and thanks for joining us and of course uh, Sir John Kingman, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.